You can open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 20, our series on the saints and spiritual warfare. Coming to an end, 15 weeks, we've been talking about this, and I think we've covered most, if not all, of the major passages in the Bible that deal with spiritual warfare. Revelation chapter 20, all of the big blockbuster movies do this. They make you think that the villain has been killed at the end, but he or she is never quite dead enough, and the hero is once again in jeopardy until he finishes the task. Something a little similar happens at the end of human history. At the second coming of Jesus Christ with his church to the earth at the end of the great tribulation, we read this. This is from Revelation 20, beginning in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven having the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He laid hold of the dragon, that serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more. Satan is defeated. He's incarcerated. You'd think it's the end. Roll the credits. They all lived happily ever after, but not quite because I didn't finish reading verse three, as you see there. It says, and he cast him into the bottomless pit and shut him up and set a seal on him so that he should deceive the nations no more till the thousand years were finished. But after these things, he must be released for a little while. What? Released? Why? Well, let's see. In verse seven, it says, now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison. Uh, in this chapter, uh, as an aside, the Holy Spirit goes to great lengths to let us know that there will be a real kingdom of heaven on the earth and that it will last 1,000 years. It isn't a metaphor for eternity or for a long time. It's real, it's literal. I think they use the word thousand in this chapter seven or eight different times. And um, I, I don't know what more uh, the Holy Spirit could do to tell us that this is real. I mention that because uh, people like to allegorize the book of the Revelation. They say that it's all symbolic and uh, no one really understands what's going on. I always like to point out that we use symbols to clear up communication, not to make it more garbled. Uh, you, we went to symbols years ago on our street signs and restroom signs and things like that so that you, you, people who speak foreign languages or other languages can look at the sign and know exactly the men's room, the ladies' room. Of course, that's getting all blurred now uh, by society, but uh, you know, now there's just, the, what do we call it? If they're not the men's room, just the room? You just go to the room or what? Anyway, um, so symbols are, are always to clarify and Revelation has a lot of strange images, but they almost always are identified for you right after they're given. In chapter one, uh, we read that Jesus is walking in the midst of lampstands, and you think, wow, that's kind of mystical, and then the, uh, John tells us that the lampstands represent the churches, and so it's not all that mysterious. And in this chapter, Revelation 20, it's the chapter that tells you that there really will be a thousand-year kingdom of heaven on the earth uh, just as promised in the Old Testament. John Walvoord said, the expositor is not free to spiritualize the interpretation, but must accept the interpretation in its ordinary and literal meaning. If this is done, there's no other alternative than at the second coming of Christ, Satan will be bound for a thousand years. 
This will constitute one of the major features of Christ's righteous rule upon the earth and will make possible the peace and tranquility and absence of spiritual warfare predicted for the millennial kingdom. And so Satan is literally incarcerated in a place called the bottomless pit. Um, In his absence, there will be justice for all. The wicked will be properly and immediately punished, and even the natural ferocity of animals will be abated. Righteousness and peace will flourish. There will be economic justice and physical healing. It will be um, better than, but our word for it would be utopia. Uh, People have been, you know, for centuries, they're trying to figure out how to make utopias. uh, And, and, you know, there's been different experiments, communal experiments and stuff to to create a society uh, that is more perfect uh, and the millennial will be that kind of society, not because of man so much, but because of the Lord. He'll be here on the earth ruling and reigning. We will have come back with him, we meaning the church of Jesus Christ. We are raptured before the tribulation in heaven with the Lord, come back with him at the end of the tribulation, and we rule and reign together uh, with him during that time in our resurrection glorified bodies. And so it's going to be a fantastic time. My favorite description of the millennium is, is uh, or I believe it's uh, in Isaiah where it says that streams will break out in the desert. It'll just be everywhere you look, it'll be beautiful. It'll be a restored earth, lions laying down with lambs, children are just, you know, putting their hands in adder's dens, snakes are happy, all the animals are happy, hunters are probably not happy, I guess, but uh, I don't know, it doesn't seem, there's going to be a lot of killing going on in the temple. There will be a temple in Jerusalem, so uh, maybe people from Texas will move over there. I don't know, but, but uh, no, I'm just kidding. We were talking about Texas earlier tonight and, and the, their penchant for hunting. Uh, but anyway, I hope I didn't offend anybody from Texas or who likes Texas or who has any affinity for Texas. I love Texas. I've been to Texas and I love it. Will the heart of man change in response to a utopian earth? Well, in verse eight it says, He'll go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle whose number is as the sand of the sea. Satan is not reformed. He's not rehabilitated after his sentence is served. He's released sort of on his own recognizance, you might say, and he goes right back to his old ways seeking to uh, lead a rebellion against the Lord. Who are these people he deceives? Well, When Jesus returns to establish this kingdom on earth, there are people who have survived the great tribulation. We just studied this a few weeks ago in Matthew 24 and 25. Uh, There are people who survive the great tribulation and um, they're alive on the earth in their human bodies when Jesus returns. Jesus will separate believers from non-believers. He calls it the sheep from the goats, uh, giving us a shepherd metaphor. And uh, those that are non-believers will be uh, set aside for judgment. They'll, they'll go to a place called Hades, we'll talk about in a minute, for judgment. Living human beings who are believers, uh, and Israel uh, is part of that. All Israel will be saved, it says. So all the living Jews will trust Christ, and there'll be many Gentiles. Uh, they will, in their human bodies, begin to live on the earth that the Lord is restoring, And they will begin to uh, marry and have children, and their children will have children. And in these near-perfect conditions on the earth, 
uh, the earth will literally have, I don't know how many billions of people by the end of the thousand years. Um, these people uh, who are born to the believers and then born after them uh, will still have a sin nature. They will uh, be regular human beings who have a sin nature and they will still need a savior and they will still need to receive Jesus Christ in order to be saved. The shocking truth you learn is that even with Jesus physically ruling the perfect earth as the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, and with the earth in near perfect condition, multitudes will reject him at the end. They will rebel against him with the devil. You can be forced to obey, but you cannot be forced to be saved. It's ultimately a matter of free will. One writer stated it this way. He said, it will be proved once more that man, whatever his advantages and environment, apart from the grace of God and the new birth, remains at heart only evil and at enmity with God. Uh, and so, um, not that we shouldn't you know, work to have a better society and to help people and to have compassion, all those kinds of things, but uh, that aside for a moment, uh, ultimately, as Billy Graham likes to say, the heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. And so you, 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 if you put somebody in a perfect environment or a near-perfect environment, it cannot transform their heart. Uh, and so it's not so much a matter of the utopian earth as it is what's going on in the heart. Who are Gog and Magog here in this? Uh, well, we see these terms in Ezekiel 38 and 39 describing a coalition of nations who invade Israel in the latter times but are miraculously destroyed by God. Uh, the battle in Ezekiel, however, occurs before the second coming of Jesus. This reference to Gog and Magog in Revelation 20, that's not that same battle. Uh, for one thing, in Ezekiel, Gog refers to a great northern power. Here in Revelation 20, it refers to people from the four corners of the earth. For another thing, the numbers here in Revelation are much greater than those in the coalition of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And for another thing, the rebels in Ezekiel fall on the mountains and their bodies are buried. Here they are devoured by fire and face immediate and final judgment. So um, admittedly confusing. Ezekiel talks about Gog and Magog and now Revelation talks about it and you think that, that ties it in. But when you study the details, you find that it's two different periods of time uh, altogether. And so here in Revelation, at the end of the millennium, uh, Gog and Magog are probably a reference to Satan's chief leaders on the earth. Gog seems to be a demon king and Magog a people probably related in history to the ancient Scythians. Uh, Revelation 20 verse nine, they went up on the breath of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city and fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. Uh, the word camp can describe those in battle or the citadel they inhabit. Here, probably just a description of the city, Jerusalem. It will be both a city and a citadel in its beauty and its strength. Now, we can't be sure if the saints referred to are those who have become believers during the millennial kingdom or to us as we rule and reign with Jesus. It might be all of us. Everyone called in from our deployments to witness the last stand of God's enemies uh, against him. Once gathered together, seems uh, here that fire comes down from God out of heaven and it devours them. None of the conflicts in the Revelation are very interesting. Uh, when Jesus comes back, our understanding in, the, in his second coming, 
Our understanding is that all of the armies of the world are in the valley of Megiddo uh, in the Middle East. Uh, from that valley is where we get the idea of Armageddon. It's a play on words. Uh, uh, they're actually fighting each other. And then the Lord comes back with his armies and those armies turn their attention to the Lord to try to destroy him. And that, that's not much of a battle either. It says that he destroys them uh, with the words of his mouth. Uh, and we don't fight at all. In fact, we're in white garments, and I don't know, I don't, I don't like to wear white much, you know? It's, it's like every time, uh, when I used to be a salesman, I finally gave up, and I, you guys all wear tie clips? Those of you who wear ties, you're tie clips? I hated tie clips, you know? I just wanted my tie to hang free and stuff, but uh, I invariably would forget that I had a tie on, and I would lean forward, and it would go into my soup, uh, you know, and so I'd have an extra tie, so I'd have to throw my tie over my shoulder or something stupid like that. Yeah, I felt, felt like, you know, like I was Jed Clampett at one point, you know, and stuff. But, but uh, so we're coming back in white, uh, and, and so we're not going to fight. We don't need to know ninja tactics or anything like that. I remember uh, the, uh, the series that was on the History Channel, The Bible, uh, recently. Um, it was... <laughs> It's pretty lame. I mean, you know, anything is better than nothing, I guess, but my least favorite, favorite part was the two angels who came to Sodom and Gomorrah, and they were ninjas. They were like dressed like ninjas, and they were doing karate moves, and they were bleeding. I mean, they were just, and I'm thinking, man, what a misrepresentation of angels. I mean, one angel in the Old Testament slew 185,000 Assyrians while they slept. I mean, it's crazy. So anyway, not much of a battle. These are all like the pay-per-view fights that you pay for, you know, and, and you think, man, I'm going to just get up and grab the popcorn. Don't do it. Don't do it. Because when you get back, it's over. You know, the main event lasted 35 seconds and, you know, and that kind of thing, and, you paid $3,500 to watch it at home or something like that. So none of these battles are, are uh, very interesting from that point of view. Uh, we spin these stories of God versus Satan, but in the end, it's very one-sided. Verse 10, the devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Satan is then cast into the lake of fire. This is his final place of torment for all eternity. The beast and the false prophet were thrown in there at the beginning of the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so the devil is thrown into the bottomless pit, sometimes called the abuso. And a bottomless pit is simply a sphere uh, somewhere because, you know, if you're inside of a sphere, it doesn't have any bottom. It just has sides. And so... Uh, it doesn't necessarily mean he's falling and falling and falling forever. He's just incarcerated somehow in this sphere. And um, then his final resting place, as it were, and place of torment is the lake of fire. And I mentioned the beast and the false prophet, and so does the scripture. And that's an important point because these two guys are still there, still alive after a thousand years. So they're thrown alive into the lake of fire, and they're not annihilated and they don't cease to exist, and they have consciousness, and after a thousand years, they're still there. And so there's no such thing as annihilation after death. You must either go to heaven or to the lake of fire. So technically, what we, when we use the word hell, when we talk about people going to hell for eternity, we're really talking about the lake of fire. Uh, and, um, and people really go there, uh, and, and they really are tormented there. Um, 
I, I've told you this many times, and I, I hope you understand what I'm saying. I would love to be able to teach that at death, non-believers are annihilated as if they never existed. Uh, it, it, it would give a lot of comfort to a lot of people uh, who are worried and wondering about their loved ones who seem to die without the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, even though they had the gospel shared uh, with them. But the Bible just doesn't teach that. There's no such thing as annihilation. <clears throat> there is uh, only the destination of either heaven or hell. It's popular among Christians to wonder if there really is a hell. You may not have encountered this, but uh, over the last few years especially, uh, people wonder if, if there really has to be suffering for eternity for having rejected Jesus Christ. Um, a guy by the name of Rob Bell, uh, who's no longer really professing to be a Christian, at one time he did, um, he was pastoring a, a rather large church, uh, he wrote a book about this subject and came to the conclusion that, that there probably isn't a hell and you know, people are annihilated and those kinds of things. Uh, one thing that really stunned me as a young believer was a phrase I kept hearing from solid Bible teachers, not, not all the time, but uh, I heard it more than once over the first couple of years I was saved, and it's, that, uh, it's this, that Jesus spoke more about hell and eternal punishment than anyone else in the Bible. And it's true, he did. He, he uh, spoke a great deal about uh, eternal punishment. If our loving, compassionate Savior who died to redeem the human race spoke about a literal lake of fire, a place of eternal punishment, then no matter what difficulties I may have wrapping my head around it, I cannot discount it. And so at the end of the thousand years comes the second resurrection. It is the resurrection of all non-believers from all of human history. Uh, unlike the first resurrection, which occurs over a period of time, the second resurrection does occur all at once. We're going to see this in verses 11 and 12. Now let me explain that a little more because the words first and second can confuse folks. The, the Bible talks about a first resurrection and it talks about a second resurrection. And without any other clarification, you come to the conclusion that, that all believers will be raised in the first resurrection at once and all non-believers in the second at once and that's not accurate. The first resurrection is a term that describes the resurrection of saved people, and it doesn't happen all at once. And we already know this, we just have to think it through. For example, Jesus rose from the dead, and the Bible says he's the first fruits of this resurrection. In other words, he's the first person to rise from the dead, never to uh, die again, and by his resurrection, the resurrection of believers is guaranteed. And so Jesus rose from the dead, but all the saints of the church age uh, who have died are still awaiting their resurrection. When Jesus returns in the clouds, the Bible says the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we which who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds. So even though it happens pretty much all at once, there's still an order to it. So you have Jesus rising from the dead, then the, church, the, the dead in Christ, the church age believers who have died, they are raised. Then the church that's left, the believers that are left, they are transformed and given their resurrection bodies. But then there are other believers who need to be resurrected, like the Old Testament saints and tribulation saints and those who come to faith during the millennium. 
And so you can see because of the timeline that the resurrection of saved people takes place over quite a long period of time. Jesus, the dead in Christ, the church, then the Old Testament saints, uh, and then the tribulation saints until finally all believers from all of time have been raised from the dead and are in their resurrection bodies. Um, that constitutes the first resurrection. All non-believers from all time will be raised all at once. It happens at the end of the millennial kingdom after the final rebellion. And while it is indeed a resurrection in which people receive bodies, it is called the second death. The first death is the separation of the soul from the body. The second death is the separation of the soul from God for all eternity. And so these scriptures that I'm gonna read now, I think are the most terrifying verses in all of the Bible. It says in verse 11, then I saw a great white throne and him who sat on it from whose face the earth and heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God and books were opened and another book was opened which is the book of life and the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Sea gave up the dead who were in it, death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Uh, is this Jesus on the throne? Well, he did indicate in the fifth chapter of the Gospel of John that it would be him. Books are opened. One seems to be the Bible because Jesus once said, he who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him the word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. Another book is called The Lamb's Book of Life. It has written in it the names of all those who receive Jesus as their savior. I tend to believe, as an alternate translation renders it, it's called The Book of the Living. Everyone ever conceived has their name listed in it. Those who die having rejected Jesus and his offer of eternal life, who have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, they will have their name removed from the book at that point. Uh, their names are blotted out. And so there's, there's different ways of looking at these books, but you have to take into account uh, the names of people being in there and the fact that your name can be blotted out. And so the best way to solve all of the teaching about uh, the book is that every, it's, it's a register of all human beings. Uh, and when a person dies without Christ, and all hope is lost for them to be saved, their name is removed from the ledger. And so at the end, uh, when these non-believers are standing before the throne of Jesus, their names cannot be found in the book because they died having blasphemed the Holy Spirit. Um, a third book is a book containing the works of men. I would take this to mean the good works they thought they could perform to work their way into heaven on their own merit. If you were doing this in a dramatic way, I don't know exactly how it's gonna unfold and I don't wanna suggest things that aren't biblical, but uh, the idea is that the word of God would be there uh, and then they'd be looking for their names and having not found their name, they'd say, well, let's look at your works and see if they are sufficient for you to get into heaven since you didn't believe in Jesus Christ. And of course, uh, like the rich man in Luke 7, uh, 16 who was in Hades, he understands that, that he belongs there because he has rejected the grace of God. And so God keeps a careful record of works if you're not a believer, but in the end, they prove woefully insufficient to get you into heaven. 
the only work that can get you into heaven is what Jesus said in John 6, 29. This is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Uh, sea and death uh, and Hades all give up their dead. The sea and death probably refer to the location of the physical bodies of the dead. The sea is mentioned so you will understand that no matter the physical location or disintegration of a body, God can raise it up again in the end. Hades is the location of their souls. Uh, right now, I've said this many times, if a person dies uh, who's a believer, the Bible says you're absent from your body and present with the Lord, your body's in the ground or cremated or at sea or wherever it ends up, uh, and your spirit is alive and well in heaven, and then uh, you will be raised, you, you know, at the time Jesus returns, your spirit will be put into a new glorified body. If a non-believer dies today, they go to a place called Hades that you read about in Luke 16. It's a temporary place of torment awaiting the final judgment when they're thrown into the lake of fire. Um, and so uh, when we talk about hell today or people going to hell, we really mean Hades. And when we talk about it in the end, we really mean the lake of fire. Uh, when we read death and Hades are cast into the lake of fire, you understand that the bodies and souls of non-believers are now in their final eternal residence. Death is the result of sin and it's gone. Hades is the result of death and it's gone. The lake of fire is the final place of eternal torment for non-believers. God doesn't send anyone there. It's a choice to go there, or it's the, it's the result of a choice, actually, is be more accurate. It's the result of choosing to reject Jesus Christ. Uh, God is love, but he's also holy and must judge sin. His love and his holiness are both satisfied at the death of Jesus on the cross, but people must believe God for salvation. He's the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. Those who refuse his offer of salvation by rejecting his son will be cast into the lake of fire. I'm gonna close by reading a passage from the book Erasing Hell. It's by Francis Chan. Now, don't let the title fool you. He believes in a literal hell and he's addressing the contemporary effort to erase it. And so uh, he's on our side. And he says this. He says, the question, what is hell, has spawned many answers over the years. For origin, hell was a place where the souls of the wicked were purified so they could find their way back to God. Dante depicted hell as a place under the earth's surface with nine levels of suffering where sinners were bitten by snakes, tormented by beasts, showered with icy rain, trapped in rivers of blood or flaming tombs. Some were even steeped in huge uh, pools of human excrement. C.S. Lewis's portrayal of hell was significantly less creepy. For Lewis, it was kind of like a dark, gloomy city or a place where being fades away into non-entity. A happier portrait of hell is painted by the band ACDC, who said that hell ain't a, a bad place to be. It's where all of our friends are. Most recently, Rob Bell said that hell is not about someday somewhere else, but about the various hells on earth that people experience in this life. Through the years, many ideas of hell have been proposed, some attractive, some not, but if truth is what we are after, we need to stick to what Jesus actually said. And so, uh, we end there as far as spiritual warfare because in the end, all the wicked are dealt with. Uh, there's a new earth, a new heaven wherein dwells righteousness and we can finally be free from the warfare uh, that uh, involves the devil inciting our flesh to respond to a world that is in chaos uh, against our Lord. And, uh, and then... Uh, more than like in the movies, we will live happily ever after. All right, amen.